Hi, I'm Emma McAdam. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And today on the channel, we have a special guest, Dr. Dorothy Hollinger. And she has recently written the book, The Anatomy of Grief. Today, we're going to be talking about how grief shows up in the brain, the heart, in your body, and in your tears. And we're going to talk about a few ways to work through the grieving process in a healthy way. If you'd like to learn more about how to work through the grieving process, in a healthy way, please check out our mini course, An Introduction to Grief, Loss, and Mourning. It's taught by Sarah Engler, a licensed clinical social worker, and in it you'll learn a lot of essential skills to giving words to your experience and how to know what is a healthy way to work through grief. So if you'd like to check that out, please do so. The link is in the description. I'm really excited to speak with Dr. Hollinger and so let's jump in. Thank you so much for being willing to join us. I'm really excited to learn from you and my audience to learn from you. Can we just jump in? How does the brain process grief and what changes do we see in the brain when someone is grieving? Well, let's start with what happens when they hear the news. And that's when the amygdala is alerted. And that's a part of the brain that really is the guardian of our survival. And so when news of a death hits someone, it affects the entire human self of the survivor, the brain, the heart, and the body. And the news registers in the amygdala. And what it does is raises the alarm, and this is research that has been in non-human animals, to fight, to flee, or to freeze. And so in humans, when that happens, if someone gets that response of fight, they'll scream or say no, or just absolutely become furious at the news. I mean, that has happened. And it's sometimes combined with fleeing, which is when someone hears the news, they'll say, no, 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 you're wrong. It's impossible. That did not happen. And then there's the other one, which is basically mm -hmm. freezing. When that happens, a person can be completely paralyzed by the news. They just, they, they simply can't speak. They're paralyzed momentarily. And so what happens mm -hmm. after that is the hippocampus, which is another region in the brain, tiny, of course, like all of them are, and it sits right behind the amygdala. And those two regions work hand in hand to process emotion and memory. So what they do is when that news, that awful news comes in, they will alert the hypothalamus. And that's the part of the brain that in my book I have called the thermostat because it regulates stress. And so what the hypothalamus does is it sends a signal to the pituitary gland which then releases a neurohormone that goes to the adrenal glands and those cells release cortisol. And that's, and, and this is called the HPA access or the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. And it's basically mm -hmm. the body's regulatory of stress. In other words, it regulates stress and tries to make the changes in the body, like raising heart rate, blood pressure, when you can't speak or you can't, or you feel faint or you lose color in your face. All of this is controlled by that HPA axis. But what the hypothalamus's role is also 
to calm the body, to try to take that body, to take that stress, not notch it down and to bring the body back to its equilibrium, which doesn't always happen because if you keep getting that cycle, mm. cortisol keeps getting released. So that's really what happens. This will happen in acute stress that I mentioned in the book. And that doesn't last that long. And what happens after that is usually after the funeral, however that is, un, however that unfolds, given the faith of the, the bereaved as well as their family. After that, you know, the bereaved is just faced with life without the loved one. And the brain has to accommodate to those changes. So in my book, I also talk about forms of grief because there are many different kinds kinds of grief. And one of them that is pretty unusual that I'll mention here, which happens in about seven to 10% of those who are bereaved, it's called complicated grief. And it happens when the bereaved cannot accept the death. And they look at photos of the deceased, they touch their clothing, they don't want to change the items that they had. And sometimes they don't even want to change the room. I had a patient who simply could not change her son who had died. She could not change that room. And it stayed the same for probably over a year. Mm. But that is very unusual. I do want to stress that. Mm. So again, about 7 to 10% in the United States and maybe 2 to 3% in internationally. There was a study, a lovely study done that showed, that compared women with complicated grief compared to women with non-complicated grief. And the women who had complicated grief, whenever they were shown photos of their bereaved along the neutral photos, as well as words that they had described their bereaved with and other neutral words. Anyway, the part of the brain that was activated was the nucleus accumbens, it's called. And that's the part of the brain that's active in, in addiction. And what the thinking is, is that doing those, engaging mm. in those behaviors over and over and over again, looking at the photos, not changing the room, et cetera, et cetera, becomes addictive. And that's why that part of the brain mm. was activated. I'd like to hear more as well about how grief affects the heart, like the yeah. physical organ of the heart. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. You know, we talk about the heart metaphorically and physically. You know, you do this when you say, oh, my heart hurts. And it's metaphorical. But there's also a physical response to grief in some people. And I have to say that this is rare. It's called broken heart syndrome. And the medical term for it is Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. And where that came from was in 1990, the Japanese coined that as the medical label for stress-induced cardiomyopathy. But what happens in broken heart syndrome is the shape of the heart changes. The left ventricle, which is the pumping ventricle, balloons out. So the shape becomes round. And then the top, which is the aorta, is, is narrow. 
And what this looks like is a Japanese octopus catching pot, which is round on the bottom and it's narrow up top. Mm. And so that's where Takatsubo came from, Takatsubo mm. Cardiomyopathy, which, believe me, it took many, many tries to be able to say that easily without stumbling all over it. So that mm. is rare, as I mentioned. However, we have to go to what happened a week ago in Uvalde, Texas, and what happened to the Garcias. Joe Garcia, who is the husband, was the husband of Irma Garcia, who was one of the teachers killed in that massacre. He died two days later, and his nephew said, my uncle died of a broken heart, and I'm sure it was. And what is this doing to their children? You know, four, 24, 19, 15, and 12 or 13. This is adding immensely to the pain, to their grief and their horror at what has happened. And we just have to, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just so inexplicably sad. I mean, it's almost like we have no words. And it's just, ah, I don't know how long. I, I I consider myself someone who is pretty good at being open to my emotions and letting myself experience them. But with this, this thing and being pregnant, I'm extra tender, but it's just so tragic. And, and I, I want to, avoid it in a way that I don't normally avoid things. Like I normally face my emotions pretty well, but this school shooting and the pain. So I can't imagine, you know, the pain of the Garcias and how that stress has impacted their family. And just like you said, that stress has a physical impact as well, which for some people in very rare situations can actually contribute to heart problems in the short term. Right. You know, we're also, as a country, experiencing our collective grief again on a national level. You know, we experience that with the other shootings that yeah. are so horrible. And we experienced it with the pandemic. And internationally, we experienced collective grief with the war in Ukraine. It's like we, our country, our globe, mm-hmm. our all the people who live on our planet, we can't get away from grief. It's heavy. It's terrible. But you know, just one thing I do want to say, go back and say about broken heart syndrome, it is rare. And when it happens, it's resolved within weeks with no after effects. But what we don't know is whether Mr. Garcia had an underlying heart condition, which might have made him more vulnerable. But you know, Emma, what you're doing, and which I'm holding back on, the tears, besides different forms of grief, again, I say that I mentioned, that I described in the second chapter of the book, we cry, we sob, we we wail, which I did after my mother died. Mm -hmm. And even non-human animals show grief like elephants have been actually almost, I think, photographed by one person who did a documentary, shedding tears with their grief because they do grieve. And chimpanzees 
have been shown to shown to show shown to show grief when one of their group dies or a companion dies and they emit anguished cries. So it brings us to also tears, which is another way the body responds mm -hmm. to grief, to sadness, to emotion. And there are three kinds. These all that, you know, as we are looking now, this is what's moistening our eyes. Reactive tears, which happens when you're cutting an onion and what the eyes do to get rid of the irritants. And then there are these emotional tears that you're experiencing and I'm holding back on. And in emotional tears, there are three different protein-based stress hormones. And one of them is called leucine enkephalin. And that's related to endorphins, which of course is a pain, reduces our pain, like when we're running, when we get an endorphin surge. Well, that's what enkephalin does when you cry, and that's why it feels good after you finish crying. Yeah. So for me, it goes with the different forms of grief. And we are just, Emma, we are just so complex. Sometimes it just, I think, how do we even know what we know, which is only not even the tip of the iceberg. It's just amazing. Actually, it's amazing who we are as humans and and how beautifully resilient we are. We are. Mm -hmm. I think it needs to be stressed for all of us who are so burdened with grief. Anyway. I do think we're resilient and I do think that we have an immense capacity to feel and to feel big emotions and to care and to love and to sob and to yeah. laugh. And I, I, you know, grief obviously is, is painful and it's stressful physically, emotionally, but people also have the capability to feel like to, to get really like to get good at feeling. And, and the healing too, which is something you mentioned in your book, this resilience yeah. and, and healing process. Yeah. And how we change. And you know, when you talked about emotion, you know, we need to laugh. We do need to laugh more. We do need to enjoy more. But to go back to cardiomyopathy, sometimes when people have an extreme, intense, mm -hmm. joyous reaction, they can also have stress-induced cardiomyopathy, but the brain, brain, the heart, it happens mm -hmm. in a different part of the heart, the midsection. So, but I guess mm -hmm. the point is, Emma, or is it the point that emotion has a tremendous effect on our bodies and we feel the emotion. It's, you read about the, what stress, what effect it has on the body. You read about what it, happiness has on, you don't usually say the body, but it is on the body. And we really don't know how yeah. much it is that what we're experiencing, seeing, hearing, touching, tasting has on the body. It's like, it's a tiny, tiny tip, maybe not of an iceberg. And, and words, and you know, words sometimes are simply not enough. 
So, you know, these emotions, we, I think, you know, the Cartesian split basically said, oh, your thoughts and your emotions are all in your head and your body is completely separate. And we're learning more and more that that is just not how it works, yeah. right? Like emotions are in our body and that's where we experience them. So how else does grief show up and impact the body? Well, you know, in, well, in various ways, I, it's not exactly the body, but it is. Our perception changes of the world. It's no longer vibrant and terrific like it's been before the loved one dies. It mm. becomes flat, gray. And there are other changes. For example, difficulty sleeping, either too much or too little. Waking up, mm. not having enough sleep, and it affects the the senses, like taste. A friend of mine told me about how she couldn't taste food for about six months after her mother died. And this was before COVID, actually long before. And mm -hmm. she told me that when she put that together, thinking, oh, I stopped tasting food after my mother died. It was then that her taste came back. It was, it's as though when you, when a person gets that insight about the physical symptom that's all of a sudden happened to them, that it goes with the grief that the symptom is concealing or masking, then it stops, the symptom stops and they're able to grieve. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, that brings me to another patient I had that experienced what's called masked grief, which is incredibly unusual to this extent. Mrs. M and her baby Tessa, who died when she was 10 months old. And what happened is Mrs. M couldn't hear well. This happened after the funeral. She came back and she was okay for a day or two, because she explained this to me later when she was in therapy. And she said that all of a sudden, well, maybe a day and a day and a day, her hearing began to diminish. She couldn't hear as well as she normally could. And she just wondered what was going on. And she was tested, you know, with auditory tests, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, she put it together that when Tessa died, she couldn't bear not hearing the baby's sounds in the house and her hearing diminished. It didn't stop, but it diminished. And she said, I realized that it was when I accepted that Tessa wasn't there anymore, that my baby was gone. It was then I began to grieve and my hearing came back. And it was amazing work she did in therapy actually after that. It was, but she came in after all of that changed for her. That's so interesting. And as you think about the history of psychology, Sigmund Freud was looking into these somatic or body-based expressions yeah. of emotions 100 years ago. And then he kind of got dismissed a little bit. And now I feel like therapy and mental health treatment is shifting back toward understanding how our body has so much to teach us, so much to show us. And if, if we listen to what our body's telling us, and like you said, when those symptoms are addressed and acknowledged as being part of an underlying grief or underlying emotion. Once we address them, it's like they're just asking to be addressed. And when we address them and honestly admit, oh, this is this is because I'm grieving. Right. This is because I've lost someone. This is because Tessa, my baby, is no longer here. Then 
our body has a way to resolve it. Our body has a way to work through and process. We have an incredible, incredible ability to heal. But you know, and part of that healing, part of that change that we do experience and go through, you have to allow yourself to be in the pain. You know, everything is fixed like in two mm -hmm. seconds or even faster. People want to move their lives to fast forward and they haven't lived it yet. It's extraordinary how we're so rushed and you can't rush grief. Each person has their own timetable. You know, I do mention this in the book, Julian Barnes, a British writer, talks about well, two things which are really amazing in his, in his book. One is he took him four years to walk into the foyer in this house without breaking into tears after his wife, Pat, died. Apparently mm -hmm. she was diagnosed with cancer and six months later she died. And mm -hmm. what was the other? He, and that was just so poignant and, and understandable. And when we think about it, Everyone has their own timetable. Actually, it's grief who has its own timetable for grieving. And we don't get to choose. <laughs> we don't. We don't. Just, we, we really don't. It's, um, yeah. And it's, but it's part of what makes us, as I was talking about, being able to allow yourself to be in the pain, it's part of what makes us change and change in a positive way that makes us different because when that loved one dies that self that we were with them is also gone now, if you want to use the word die but it changes mm. we're never the same person we were with our mother who mm. died or our father or that person is gone. So we become a different self and that self is gone like the one who the one who died. You might notice that I use the word die, I don't say pass. Like this person passed away or passed. It's so important mm -hmm. to use the words as much as you can when you identify the feeling of what the feeling, what the emotion is. I'm really glad that you are bringing that up because as I mentioned healing, I mentioned that as a hope, yeah. as like, I believe in our resilience, but not as an immediate, like, let's make this go right. away as much as let's work the process yes. and let's, let's go through, through the process of feeling and any pressure toward getting over it, <laughs> getting over it, it's probably more harmful than yes, helpful. Yes, right? because we actually never really do. I mean, it calms down. I say, right. you know, it erupts, calms down. This is after a while, after the grieving, you know, the main grieving happens. And it's, sometimes I get stuck on saying it's because I can't find the words you want more words, and the deeper the emotion, the harder it is to find a word for it. 
And I, you know, I tell my patients that. So sometimes when you're struggling to say something or to get to something, it's okay to do, to struggle. It's okay for there to be spaces in between words or time. Again, we don't have to, you can't rush it. There's just no way to get around that. You know, another thing that might be helpful to address, Emma, is what's called disenfranchised grief. What siblings feel when a brother or sister dies, they become the secondary grievers because it's the parents who are the primary grievers. And oftentimes, particularly when they're children, Mm. they don't feel like they have the right to express their grief as much as the parents do. And often that grief is just pushed aside. Sometimes it's not masked like that, the mass grief example of a patient I mentioned, but you know, it, it can be pushed aside and come out as a headache if you around the anniversary of the day the sibling, the brother or sister died. But it's important for them to realize mm-hmm. that they have their own grief and it's as real and as full as the parent. Well, that maybe is, it's different than the parents, different grief. But people maybe feel like they aren't allowed to grieve because someone else feels it more, but there is a process where they can be allowed to feel what their grief is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was another patient who, oh, that was it. It was a complicated case. That's why I couldn't quite pull the details together. Anyway, this person had heard about, well, let me back up because this really connects with another form of grief. It's called forbidden grief. And it really segues segue from the brother or sister who didn't feel they had a right to grieve. And this happens again, as I said, with siblings to children. With this particular patient, she had heard about her mother who died and how she heard about it was her sister called her. They couldn't find her. Well, her sister couldn't find her. She kept searching for it, but she'd forgotten that she was staying at a friend's house overnight. And finally she got to her sister. And, but when my patient, the sister got on the phone, she just blurted out at her angrily, where have you been? Mom is dead. And my patient never was able to deal with that until actually in therapy. And to compound that Mm. was when she got home and after the funeral, her father said to her, her sister, and there was a brother, I don't ever want you to mention this again. I cannot deal with your mother's death. Please don't talk about her. Oh, no. He was absolutely, he might not have done Mm. this in, in these words that I'm using, but it was basically forbidden grief. And they were children. And that was something that this patient worked with. But whatever, but there was more. I mean, it was just an amazing set of different pains and griefs. What she found out later on that her father, which was why her father couldn't 
child about it because her mother had committed suicide. And that was part of the reason her mm. father wouldn't talk about it. And she learned that and then completely forgot it until it came out in therapy. And why she came into therapy was her husband had died. So it was a very complicated set of griefs and emotions and experiences in her life that began as a child in terms of working mm-hmm. with what she was experiencing. That does sound complicated. It sounds very, very, like just so much to, to process and work through there. And was she able to work work that process in therapy? She was. was she able, it's all really interesting. And I feel like the more people learn about it and have words for it, yeah. the more they can know, you know, what to do with it. So knowing that the giving words to the types of grief and being able to identify how grief impacts your body can just be an important part of healing in and of itself. Is there anything yes. else that people can do to help heal and soothe their bodies through this grieving process? Absolutely. And I talk about this when I, because I do give talks about grief. Don't be afraid of what you're feeling. Don't let your griefs scare you. Feel it. Allow mm. yourself to feel that grief. And in feeling it, know that it will calm down. It won't go away, but it will calm down. And then the connected to that is don't be surprised when it erupts. And all of a sudden one day you just, you're hit with crying and you think, what? I've gone through this. What's going on? It's an anniversary of a death or an anniversary of something else or you know, it can be a song that you've heard that was so special to you and your dad and you hear it and you just break down and cry and miss him. And of course, we're coming into Father's Day or, you know, an aroma, an apple mm-hmm. pie or something like that. So don't be surprised if it erupts and you think, why did this happen? Well, it's normal. It's perfectly normal and healthy. But also, as I use the <clears throat> example of Julian Barnes, talk about your grief. Talk about it. And, you know, some people have said to me, well, my family doesn't want to talk about it. They say to me, don't talk about it. Well, how you can introduce that is, I'm sorry it upsets you, but I need to talk about this. I'm sorry, but I need to talk about it. So talk your grief. Write your grief. If you have a journal, write it in a journal with scraps of paper or anything. Or if you paint, if you're an artist, do something with painting. If you're a gardener, garden some more. And I often talk about the three E's to remember with grief, but just maybe with life in general, exercise, education, aesthetics. And what I mean by that is with exercise and particularly with grief, Don't stop moving. You're not going to feel like it. It's going to be hard to pick yourself up. But stretch, walk, bicycle, just, you know, move around. Don't be inactive. And with with education, what I mean by that is keep learning. Challenge yourself. Start a new project. Begin a new hobby. Do something that challenges your mind. I mean, this is in general for all of us, but particularly with grief. 
And the last one with aesthetics, do things that are enriching and that please you. Go to a museum, to a movie, to a concert. Just go outside and look at what the surround is. Smell the air. Inhale it. Um, be, Be one with your being. It's a funny thing to say. Be one with your being. In other words, be aware of yourself, your body, and your emotions, and your thinking. It's okay. And you be okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I appreciate those, those uh, reminders. And I think for a lot of people that, from what I've heard, it's difficult to let themselves enjoy or to let themselves do something they enjoy, but it's an important part of the process. Because letting in that joy, you use the word enjoy, which has joy in it. And when they let in that joy, it can coincide with grief and also be changed. Grief can be changed into joy, that I say in my last chapter, with the memories of the loved one. Well, that's, that's beautiful. I believe that. I do too. I have, I have one more question okay. for you. You do a lot of grief work and a lot of counseling with people. Do you find it, the more you do it, do you find it heavier and heavier, or do you find it uplifting in some way? It's a wonderful question. And I have to qualify this. I don't just work with people who are grieving. I want to say I couldn't, because I am so part of that process when somebody who is grieving is in my office. and, Mm -hmm. And I must say I get so very much from my patients, their strength, their resilience, their humor. And we do laugh a lot, but I have to go back to one of the patients that I mentioned who had complicated grief and she couldn't change her son's furniture. She couldn't change that room. Emma, I was the one who cried when she couldn't. When she couldn't, she couldn't touch her grief. Mm -hmm. I cried for her until she cried and she were able to cry together. And it's funny when you talk about the heart, when she left her very last thing she said to me, you will always be in my heart, like my son. And she said herself first. Mm -hmm. He is whatever his name was in that local. He's always in my heart and so are you. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's there's something beautiful about that process, even with the pain. As therapists, we experience as counselors and psychologists, and there's it's hard to put to words. But there's something, like you said, we don't <laughs> we don't drown ourselves in it. But also, there's some beauty. Yeah. There's there's a beautiful part yeah. to it. We're so fortunate, really. I think it's really, I say this, we're so fortunate and it's an honor for us to be able to work with people, to be able to help them mm-hmm. and to see them mm-hmm. helped. It is so joyous. Absolutely. Oh, Emma, thank you. Absolutely. It's the best work. Thank you. I really appreciate your time and your expertise, your book. 
thanks for making the time to be with me and my audience today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Emma. It was really an incredible interview. And thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Okay, I'm really grateful that Dr. Hollander was here today to speak with us and share her expertise and time with us. If you'd like to learn more about what she's written, this is her book, The Anatomy of Grief, and you can check it out wherever books are sold. Thank you all for being here and take care.